Good morning. I'm Kim Tagesson, one of the uh, elders at uh, Christ Community Church. Uh, today we'll be reading uh, from Scripture, uh, the book of Mark, chapter 14, in your few Bibles. That'll be pages 850 and 851. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Starting in verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Jumping to verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. You may be seated. There is a funny story that I believe is told to be true about Muhammad Ali, who just passed away, as most of you know, and he was on an airplane, and the stewardess had said, you know, it's time to buckle up, you know, trying to put on your seatbelt, and and, uh, Muhammad Ali wouldn't put on a seatbelt, and uh, the 
you know, the stewards came by a couple times, and Mr. Ali, you got to put on your seatbelt so the plane can take off. And he said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And she, in very quick wisdom, said, Superman don't need no airplane either. So uh, let's buckle up. <laughs> uh, but there was, a, there was an interesting little headline with his death. Um, you know, he was called the greatest. And the headline was, the greatest fighting the greatest battle for his life. And guess what? He lost that battle. Everybody loses that battle except for one man. So, you know, you can be the greatest right now. You can be the most alive right now. You can have whatever you want right now. But one day you're going to be in that fight, and you and I, we are going to lose that fight. That is a guarantee. So the question is, is do you believe in somebody who can get you through that? When you're treading on the verge of Jordan, which means when you're at death's door and you're just about ready to cross the Jordan into Canaan's side, when you're trying to get into the promised land, will you be fear? Will you is there something that can make those anxious fears subside? And the answer is there is someone who can make those anxious fears subside. And that's a person who's, who's gotten all the way through and come out of the tomb and has made a promise that if you trust in him, he'll take you there himself. So that's, that's what we're here for, to, to learn about that person, that person is Jesus Christ, and we're learning about him here as part of our series of missing pieces, just parts of uh, the story of the gospel, Old and New Testament, that we weren't ever able to cover over our year of flight through the Bible. And when we in uh, this particular passage, we're in the, the, these first four books of the New Testament. They're called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. They're the first four books of the New Testament. They're called the Gospels because that's called the good news. And um, Mark is thought to be the earliest of the written Gospels. And Mark is also thought of as, or referred to as Peter's Gospel because most scholars believe Mark was a friend of Peter and he's basically writing down Peter's responses and Peter's uh, experiences with his time with Jesus. So specifically, when you open to Mark chapter 14, you're turning to what's called the passion narrative. Passion in the Greek means suffering. So you're in the suffering of Christ. If you uh, know about the movie called The Passion of Christ, it's, it, it's, it's a movie about specifically about the sufferings of Christ. And it's interesting to me here that Mark introduces Christ's passion first by focusing our attention on someone else. Here he is. He's, just, he's about to enter in. This is the, the gateway to really seeing the suffering of Christ. And instead of, instead of first focusing on Jesus, he focuses on someone else. He, he actually focuses on an unnamed person, an unnamed woman who interrupts this, this dinner party. Now, as the reader, and you might not see this just right away, but you're supposed to notice this, so I'm going to help you see this. You're supposed to notice the structure here in this first uh, section of Mark. Twice Mark does this. He highlights something beautiful by framing it with something dark. So he wants to like set a, set a star that you can see, 
And in order to really see the star, he's got to put a blackness around it so you can really say, wow, now that's beautiful. That's, that's great. That's what we want to see. And you see it here in Mark chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. The chief priests and the scribes, they're seeking how to arrest Jesus. They're trying to arrest him by stealth. They're trying to figure out how they can kill him. And then in verse 10, this is the frame. That's the beginning. Here's the end of the frame. Then Judas Iscariot, he goes to the chief priest in order to to betray Jesus. So you see that frame. What we want to see is verse 3 through verse 9. That's the star. But the way Mark writes is he wants to put it against this black backdrop so you can really see it perfectly or with great more, more clarity. You see the same thing in Mark chapter 14, 17 through 31. Look at verses eight, verse 18 with me. As they were reclining at the table, this is the Last Supper, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you. This is in the Greek, it reads, Amen. And when Jesus says amen before he makes a statement, he really wants you to lean in because this is really important. One of you will betray me, verse 18. Then if you look at verse 30, this is the backside of the frame. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you, Peter, will deny me. So, so he's saying at the beginning of this dinner party, one of you is going to betray me. And then he tells Peter, you're going to deny me these two black things on the frame to help you see this beautiful thing in the middle. So you're supposed to see and notice that structure. Now, you might say the passion displayed in this first section, Mark 1, uh, 14, 1 through 11, is a picture of the passion displayed in the second, which is the reason for the title. This is a picture of Christ's passion. So what we're going to look at here in these first 11 verses is like a, a picture or maybe a tremor of an earthquake to come. So you see this and it sets you up for this second story that's in the second part of the chapter. So I want to look at this first picture, and I want to look at it in sort of three stages. First, very simple and very obvious to follow, the action of the woman. So what is it this woman actually did? Secondly, the reaction of the disciples. They're very quick to react. And then third, Jesus' evaluation. So we're going to look at an action then we're going to look at the disciples' reaction, and then we're going to look at Jesus' evaluation of what's going on here. So let's look at those in turn. First, the action of the woman. You notice in the opening verses, it tells us it's two days before Passover. This is the last journey for Jesus to Jerusalem. And he's come, and it's just two days before the Passover, the most celebrated event in Jewish history where they celebrate the lamb who's slain so that death might pass over. So it's it's, it's obvious how Jesus is using this event to eventually point to himself. And in Mark 13, Jesus had just left the temple, and he's arrived in this little town that he always stays in, like a bed and breakfast next to Jerusalem. The little town's called Bethany. He's there many, many times. It's two miles. It's across the Kidron Valley, which is the where, where the Garden of Gethsemane is. It's a big olive orchard. So you, you leave this bustling city, you walk through this orchard, and you come to this little outside, this little town outside of the big city called Bethany. And Jesus is staying there. And he's the person who's the guest 
at this dinner party. And what a, what a guest list. First, Simon the leper is there. He's the host, apparently. He's the leper, the leper who's been healed by Jesus, the leper who, who in a blink of an eye, when Jesus said, you're clean, his skin became like new. The leper who could never go to a dinner party. In fact, when the leper comes to, into your presence, he has to say, unclean, unclean. So everyone parts away from the leper, so, so nobody gets near the leper. And here the leper, he's the, the host of this dinner party, and, and I just want to know what he's talking about. I want to ask him, I mean, what was it like when Jesus said, be clean and you were, you were clean? What's it like to host a dinner party for Jesus and the disciples? The disciples are there, the 12 disciples. If you were to read back in chapter 11, you know the disciples' heads must have been spinning because Jesus had been talking to them about the end of the temple and the end of the world. And you you just have to know during the appetizers that one of the disciples were like, now, I mean, you said something about the sun and the moon and the stars and the end of the world, and I mean, I didn't quite get that on the first pass. Can you help me again understand it? And that's, I would have wanted to be leaning in on seeing what Simon the leper was talking about, and then I would have had another ear on what are the disciples talking about with Jesus? I mean, these are the kinds of conversations I would love to have heard. And then we know from another gospel passage, Lazarus, Lazarus, who with his two sisters live in Bethany, he's an invited guest to the dinner party. Lazarus, who had been dead. Wouldn't you love to have been around that conversation? I mean, you read these stories about near-death experiences. Well, Lazarus had an actual death experience. It wasn't near-death. He was really dead for four days. And I would want to say, Lazarus, I mean, what did you see? What was it like? What was it like when you heard Jesus' voice, Lazarus, come out? What's the first thing you thought of when you woke up and you were wrapped up in a tomb? What did that feel like? So I'm, I'm thinking about this dinner party, and I'm saying to Mark, the writer, why didn't you write this stuff down? I mean, this to me would be fascinating to be at this dinner party and just have three ears that are listening to all these conversations. But Mark didn't write any of those conversations down. But he did write something down. He did highlight something that was really beautiful, that was really worth seeing. And what he highlighted was the action of this unnamed woman. And notice how Jesus describes the action in verse 9. Truly I say to you, another one of these amen statements, wherever the gospel is going to be proclaimed, this woman is going to be remembered. Imagine that. I mean, he could have said that about Lazarus. He could have said that about the disciples. He could have said that about the leper. But he says it about a woman that we never even know her name. That that from this point on, this woman, 2,000 years later, in a small town in North America, in Wilmington, she's going to be remembered right alongside of the gospel. 
Not that she's just going to be remembered. Wherever the gospel is going to be proclaimed, there's something about her action that shows something about the gospel that you just must see, is what Jesus is saying about it, which is incredible. So I'm, I'm anxious. I hear that, and I want to lean in, and I want to learn what's so special about this woman's action. And we see that in verse 3, her gift is a, an alabaster jar, or it's a marble jar, and it's filled with some very expensive perfume. Apparently, the perfume had, had come from India. And probably it was something like a, an heirloom, something that got passed down. And it was very expensive. So it, it, you might have thought of it as kind of an inheritance. This is, this is something that's really valuable that's been passed down to her as part of her inheritance. And we're told uh, that... that There's a quick assessment by the disciples as to its worth. It's a a year's wages. But the gift, we must know, is more than just money. The woman isn't just breaking open an expensive jar of perfume. The woman's breaking open her inheritance. She's breaking open her future. She's breaking open her security. Everything that she had, everything she could have leaned on from the world, she breaks it open onto Christ. All of her hope now is resting at the feet of Jesus. And you notice in verse 8, Jesus says something very interesting. She, she did what she could. Man, that's a phrase I'd love for Jesus to say to me. Paul, I don't need you to do everything. I don't need you to do some things. I don't need you to do what other people are going to do. I just need you to do what you can do. Would you break open your inheritance? Would you break open your security? Would you break open your future? And would you put it all at your feet? Whatever that means for me, whatever that means for you. So that's the action of this woman. Now, now let's notice the reaction by the disciples. These, these 12 people who spent three years next to Jesus, they, they've seen everything, they've heard everything. They're the ones who are going to launch the church. Well, here we are at the very end of Jesus' life. And look at their quick, quick, uh, quick assessment, verse 4. Why was this ointment wasted like that? Now, now this is a very harsh assessment. Not just for the woman, but for Jesus. Who, who was wasting the ointment? The woman. Who was she wasting it on? Why is it wasted like that? Who are they referring to? Jesus. See, our assessment is that you're wasting it, woman, and you shouldn't have wasted it like that to Jesus. Their, their rapid response seems to expose their heart, their, their calculation of how much money it's worth, their, their assessment of who should receive it. Both seem to have man at the center. First, that they know what's best. I mean, you think they would have learned by this point. It's just their quick assessment. Hey, let me quickly assess what I think, and that must be right. 
And once I quickly assess what's right, I must say it right away. I must not wait a second for anybody to intervene on my thoughts. I must get it out for everyone to know. Uh, Second, the money could have gone to help who? Mankind, the poor. So so their assessment is man-centered, I know what's best. And then what should have happened is man-centered. It should have been wasted or spent on someone else. And what should have been the center for the disciples, you'd think for sure, would should have been Jesus. And what seemed to be the center for the disciples was themselves. What should have been the center is Jesus, but what seemed to be the center was themselves. And unfortunately, this isn't a new problem for the disciples. Look back with me, Mark chapter 8. You can go left three or four pages Mark chapter 8, verse 31. They, were on, they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he, Jesus, didn't want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying this, the Son of Man, this is a reference to himself, is going to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. Okay, Jesus is saying this as clear as it can be. Uh, but they, the disciples, didn't understand what they were, uh, were asked, what, what he was saying. And they can't, I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm in Mark, I'm not in the right place, am I? Mark 31, 831. Sorry. You're all like, oh, I'm, this is in the Bible somewhere, but it's not where he is. Mark 831. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be re- rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after that, three days arise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You see that? They, ha- they have themselves at the center. And then the passage that I was referring to, 931, same thing happens. The Son of Man is going to be delivered, he says this, verse 32. But they didn't understand what he was saying. So as they walked along and they came to Capernaum, uh, Jesus uh, was in the house and he asked them, Hey, on the way, what were you guys discussing? Uh, They kept silent for on the way they were arguing with one another, Who is going to be the greatest? So Jesus, on the way to his death, is discussing what's going to happen. What are they discussing? Uh, Who's going to be the greatest? Chapter 10, verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. This is all one traveling towards Jerusalem, but now they're getting near the city. Jesus is walking ahead. They were amazed at those who followed. And and he was talking to the twelve, and he began to tell them what was going to happen. See, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will contemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the two people of the three in the inner circle, James, John, and Peter, the sons of Zebedee, the ones who had been fishermen that were called to come and follow Jesus, to, to become fishers of men, came up to Jesus and said, Jesus, or teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we want. 
Now, now when you read these accounts together, you get the feeling the disciples were serving Jesus to get things. They were serving Jesus because Jesus was going to eventually be useful. But when, when you read about the unnamed woman, she was pouring out everything onto Jesus just because Jesus was beautiful. The disciples were serving to get things. They were serving Jesus because he was useful. The unnamed woman who Mark wants you to understand, this is the person you need to pay attention to at the dinner party, is doing it just because of Jesus is beautiful. And so everyone here this morning is, you and I, we're pouring our lives out. You are pouring your life out to someone or something. You're, you're, you're resting your hope, your inheritance, your future on someone or something. And my question is, who's at the center of your calculation? Now, specifically, if you're here and you would consider yourself a disciple... You and I must ask this question, have you poured out your money, your time, and your life following Jesus in order to get things? Have you served, volunteered, said things, prayed, hoping just to get things, or because Jesus is beautiful? There's an enormous difference, perhaps an eternal difference. Is Jesus beautiful or is he useful? It seems to me you can look at this dinner party and conclude that a person can have the most incredible experiences, have access to the greatest knowledge, call themselves a disciple, and still miss the gospel. You can follow Jesus just because of what he can do for you, and then you're still at the center. So that's a question when you read the passage. You need to wrestle with yourself. Let's just quickly end here by just noticing Jesus' evaluation And you won't be surprised. It's the exact opposite of the disciples. This happens pretty frequently through the Gospels. You can just read and say whatever the disciples are going to say. It's going to be 180 when Jesus says something about it. And it's exactly the same here. She's done something beautiful which should be forever remembered. And one reason is because her pouring out of her inheritance, the pouring out of her future, the pouring out of her security is is just a tremor pointing to a massive earthquake that's coming in this, this, in this same chapter. Chapter 14, verse 24. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out. See, she's pouring out some perfume that's very expensive, but it's a picture that Jesus is going to pour out his blood. And none of it's going to be wasted. And it's going to be beautiful. And when you see what this woman is doing, you notice it's a tremor. It's a picture of something great that's on the horizon. And what she's doing is is beautiful. 
And when you see the death of Christ as beautiful, when it eclipses everything else in the world, you'll be like the woman and you'll do whatever you can do. If Jesus is just useful, you'll do what's needed or necessary. If he's beautiful, you'll do everything you can do. See, some of us are just trying to hit the limit. What, what's the limit to get in? I'm just trying to get in. I'm just trying to do this limit. And why? Because it's useful. I want to go to heaven. But you miss the gospel. Second reason this woman's going to be remembered is to demonstrate to the first century disciples and the 21st century disciples what it looks like to fully invest in Jesus. It's not just a series of experiences. It's a life that's, that's completely poured out. So this morning, Jesus and the unnamed woman are inviting me, inviting you to see Jesus as beautiful, not useful. This morning, the, the woman and Jesus are inviting us to, to break open our inheritance to break open our security, to break open our future and pour it all out on him. Whatever it is you can do, you do that peace. Because, because Jesus is still looking for men and women who will be like this woman, who will break open everything they have and pour it out. And the world may make the assessment that it's a waste. You're wasting your life by doing this thing. And Jesus is saying, no, you're still going to be used as a picture, a tremor of me and what I've done for people. So my, one of my questions here, is there something you're, you're too afraid to break open? There's something in your soul. It's like a, a jar or inheritance it's in the safety deposit box, and I, I just can't give that up. What would it like? What, it, what would it be like to pour that out to Jesus? The woman is a, a great picture. She doesn't have any special designation. She has no special position. She has no special education. We don't even know her name. And Jesus said, that's the kind of people I'm looking for. People who will break open everything they have and give their life to me. Those are the people that can show the gospel most clearly. Why? Because Jesus has poured out his life for us. So it's a perfect setup for communion to think about Jesus pouring his life out for us. And so we'll have communion here in a moment. And my question would just be, first of all, for the people who say they're disciples, including myself. Are you serving Jesus because he's beautiful? Or are you serving Jesus because he's useful? It's a big difference. And there may need to be something to repent of there. Secondly, if you're not a believer, you're seeking or you just somehow you came in here with a friend or whatever, I, I would just ask you to say, first, don't come to the table, but just sit quietly and say, what, it, what am I pouring my life out to? I am pouring my life out for something or someone. 
And no matter how great you think it is, and no matter how great you may think you are, you will be in a battle one day that will be the greatest battle you ever faced, and you're going to lose. That's death. So is what you're pouring yourself out to able to get you out of death? If not, I'd like for you to sit and reconsider the offer of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we, we come and uh, I confess for myself and, and for all of us here, we live in this culture that's a, about proclaiming our name, getting our name out. And here is a woman who has no name. And she is the one who's going to be remembered right alongside the gospel. So may she be a good uh, a witness to us of how to live our lives, what's really valuable in life. And a picture of what you did, that you poured out your blood and you said, this is a new covenant. I'm making a new covenant. I'm making a new commitment here. And I'm using my body and my blood. And I'm going to give so you don't have to give your body and your blood. I'm going to substitute my perfect life for yours so that you might stand before God clean, not unclean. Lord, would you minister to everyone here, I pray, at this moment. In this sacrament of grace, the Lord's Supper, communion, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The ushers will come by aisle, and if you're one that wants to come, you you come when they come to your aisle. And just think about what you're pouring your life out to, and, and then pray for others as they come forward, that they might be more like the woman pouring their lives out for Jesus.
You know, I think of all the names that you know in the Bible and you're anxious to meet when you get to heaven. But it may be much more fascinating the people that don't have a name. And just be amazed, just amazed at these people that nobody knows. Nobody knows. And, and they could have been, I mean, God knows their name, right? He could have written it in there. But it's just important that most of us don't have a name in the world. It doesn't matter if you're the greatest in this world. It matters if you're known by Jesus. So that's a question for you. I, I just pray that we'll, we'll be around. I'll be in the lobby as long as you want. If you need to, someone to talk with, we'd be happy to talk to you about that. Let's stand and sing our closing song together. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Here of salvation, purchase of God. Born of His Spirit, washed in His blood. Therefore, we would leave this place 
breaking things open.